0: Hey everybody, thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk, and again, I'm sitting here by my lonesome with no Robbie, but uh, the good news is he's coming back. He's finally getting into some some normalcy in his life, and he's going to be my regular co-host this year, and we got some cool episodes lined up. Uh, to bring to you going into fall, and I'm excited to have him back. It's uh, kind of awkward doing it all by yourself again. Brings me back to to last year when I was first getting started. So it's kind of a camaraderie thing. I feel otherwise, I'm talking to myself. But no, I, again, I appreciate it. And I am I can't believe how out of shape I am. <laughs> I I've been getting back into a rhythm of shooting my bow, trying to build some muscles, build some muscle memory and uh i've also this past year been really trying to take an initiative to just drop some weight man ever since college getting into that normal uh day to day of work and family and eat sleep repeat and all that stuff man my eating habits just got terrible i put weight on and i really noticed it last year when i was hiking around in the mountains hunting i'm like i i just got to do something this is getting out of hand so uh, I, I dropped some weight this year and I'm feeling way better. And, you know, I started, uh, shooting my bow and just trying to get back in shape. And I'm going to, I'm like, I'm going to go and I'm going to take this to the next level. And I'm going to, I'm going to do some running and I'm going to do some push-ups and I'm going to do some, some sit-ups and pull-ups and all this stuff and did some of those things. But I'm just like, Oh my word, I am so out of shape. And it's like painful. Like this morning, uh, did all that stuff I just said, and then shot my bow right afterwards. And I, I could hardly hold the bow up. Like my shoulders were just dying. Um, I'm just like, man, I am weak. I got to get in a groove here. So uh, it comes easier come fall. But uh, I feel like ever since I had COVID, my chest like gets tighter. And I know, like, if you're not doing, you know, physical exercise and stuff that can happen, but, but, like, I never had that tightness, shortness of breath, and, like, burning sensation in my chest like I do when I do physical activity now, and it's, it's a real pain in the neck, so... Uh, first world problems, I guess, is the way to look at it. But no, it's a time of year. We are into August now, and where would we be without having a conversation about food plots? Everybody else is doing it, and you know that if you've listened to this channel, you know that I talk a lot about food plots because I think they're extremely important. And uh, as an agronomist, um, I kind of have some background knowledge about the plants and how those plants interact with the soil, and I can relate it well to deer hunting and relating those things. And some of the things I wanted to talk about today, I really want to talk about catering your hunting goals or and your food plots. I mean, what I mean by that is really having specific goals for hunting, and then how are you going to use your food plots for that. Um, I want to talk about the Uh, species requirements based on browse pressure and maybe what your soil type is and soil conditions are and how to assess that i want to talk about maximizing the amount of food for season long potential and then i lastly i want to touch on effectively hunting and holding deer with a good food plot rotation you know right now this is the this is the money making time these fall food plots this is where you can get biomass this is your last chance to get good quality food and really affect your hunting and i want to touch on that and try to give you some context behind it because it's you know everybody's putting stuff on social media and youtube and You know, you're seeing guys going through with tillers and planters, and they're planting this species and, you know, this seed blend, and it might all be well and good, but it can be really, really hard to decide, what should I plant? What is going to be the best thing for me? And that's really hard to answer, but what I'm going to try to do is explain to you what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And uh, I'll also touch a little bit on a uh, kind of a a poor man plot that I'm going to be doing this year. Uh, we'll call it that. It's just going to be with less equipment than I'm using on some of the larger food plots that I talk about. Um, before we get into this conversation, uh, I just want to touch real quick on the, the people that are supporting this podcast, and that's Little Mountain Outfitters. Little Mountain Outfitters is a archery shop located in Richland, Pennsylvania that has it all. If you need to get a new bow, they will tune you up with a Matthews, a Prime, PSE bear they've got crossbows all the accessories you could possibly need and well and behold they're also food plot dealers they deal with real world wildlife seed they've got a great list of species and and they're all stocked up with everything you would need so if you listen to this episode and you think man i want to i want to try this and that you know check them out they also can get you set up for mobile hunting you know, I was just down there the other day, and I got to try on and, and test out some of the some of the newer saddle hunting equipment that I haven't really got exposure to, other than just watching it on my phone or uh, on YouTube or something like that. So feeling it, touching it, seeing it, and, and trying to make those decisions—it's a great opportunity if you're looking to upgrade equipment or if you just want to uh, try it out if it's new to you. So fantastic shop, great customer service they've hooked me up so many times tuning my bows helping me with tuning issues uh full of knowledge i asked some questions i'm tinkering with some arrow setups and you know they've they've experienced anything from the light end of the spectrum to the heavy end Uh, so i really recommend if you need to finalize those things uh do it with them so with that let's have at it and let's get into some food plot conversation All right. I'm really passionate about food plots. I love to work in the dirt. I love to see the transition of planting, seeing plants grow, and how that plant-animal interaction occurs. And I truly believe it is a game changer on private lands. I feel anybody that is hunting a private land that has the capability to plant a food plot but isn't, they truly are missing out. I mean, it changes your hunting, but you have to be smart about how you go about it. And you also have to be, uh, cognizant about how you hunt it. And you've heard me talk on this channel a lot of other times, you know, I'm very pro no-till cover crops and soil health and covering the soil. And I talk about that stuff for a lot, a lot of reasons. And there's a lot of, hype about soil health right now coming into the food plot industry. And that's a good thing. But I don't want anybody to lose sight of why and, and take some context away because I feel like it's turning into a buzzword. We talk about soil health, soil health, soil health. Why are we doing it? And wh- why, does, why does anybody care? Is it really accomplishing your goals? And I've, I've said before, my goal every fall is to shoot a mature buck from my area. I'm trying my hardest to do that each and every season. And soil health and food plots are part of that. And we're going to talk today about why that's part of that. Um, I don't want anybody to just feel like you, you just keep the soil health and healthy and it's just uh, that's what you do and you're going to sacrifice any hunting potential. That's, that's not what we're talking about. I'm trying to do all that because healthy soil promotes better food plots, better nutrient-rich plants, which are nutrient exchange agents to the animals that eat them, that you attract in your property to kill. So it's really that simple, but um, I I talked earlier, I planted a a summer blend this year, and it was kind of an experiment, a little bit trying to figure out what species, what rates, and uh, and, and manipulating that. I had uh, a, a grain sorghum in there, sun hemp, a little bit of buckwheat, cowpeas and sunflowers uh, was that mix and my goal was to have something that i knew the deer would browse on but hopefully it was going to be something that was browse tolerant and i wanted to try to maximize the amount of plant growth in the summertime because plant growth That gets tall above ground means plant growth that gets tall below ground. It's going to pull nutrients up, and then when I terminate that crop and I plant my fall blends that we're going to talk about here in a little bit, it's going to release nutrients and it's also going to cover the soil. And I had some successes and some failures. Uh, Some of the seeding rates were a little bit too light, and they just got annihilated. Uh, there wasn't enough there for the amount of deer that were eating it, and they ate it too hard. And I don't have the above ground growth uh, that I wanted, and that's okay. They, you know, they ate it it supported the deer herd. It's just not um, cycling things the way I wanted to because my emphasis on when I want the most food and the most deer to to consume it is uh, is in the fall, and when uh, when you have fall food going in. I want I want to pull deer in the fall and I don't really, it's not that I don't care about deer other times of the year. I absolutely do. It's important. But the low hole in the bucket for me and the properties that I get to hunt is the fall and the winter. That's when food is in its lowest concentration. That's when hunting pressure is the highest. So anything I can do to alleviate that and attract them onto the properties I hunt, obviously it's going to make for better hunting but it's also going to, uh, it's going to enhance the overall deer health and and capabilities because we got beans, alfalfa, and corn relating around us. So if they're out and they're eating that summer, spring, stuff like that, they're they're getting what they need. I I don't need to necessarily provide them that, but I do want to make sure that I'm emphasizing the fall. Uh, You know, I talked about the This the summer blend and trying to get biomass. And when that stuff lays on top, it's covering the soil. And we are in a huge drought nationwide. I'm looking at corn and soybeans this year that I'm really concerned my growers are going to have insurance claims on because the drought has impacted their crops potential that much. The reproductive uh, potential of the of the crop is poor pollination was poor it's just all of it relates to no moisture <clears throat> and <clears throat> excuse me that soil coverage is important and I talk about residue so I've seen in places where there's no residue on the surface no old plant matter covering the surface there could be a difference of 30 to 40 degrees in soil temperature in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day between no coverage and, you know, heavy soil coverage. That mulch layer is preventing moisture from evaporating out of the soil. It's reducing the temperature. It's slowing that process. And I see that in our food plots. You know, we've got cover on top of the soil, then we've got plants growing. While we've been in a drought, I haven't seen that extreme wilting pressure in those food plots, and that's a good thing because God forbid we go into, you know, we continue with this drought stress in August and September. I hate food plot failures. <clears throat> now you can do things to alleviate food plot failures, and I'll touch on that a little bit. You know, let's say this first planting would would stink here in August into September. We can do stuff to cover it, but the powerhouse is now, and I want to try to maximize that. So, I have a no-till seed drill and a tractor. We're going to drill right through this summer blend, and some of the fields, I kept everything in it, and there's very little weed pressure. I won't have to do any spraying or very little spraying of any type. Uh, Some of the food plots were a lot weedier, a lot messier, and I did, I, I will have to spray and kill some of that weedy material, and just the things that are going to compete with this next crop that we're planting. But hopefully in the fields that I don't have to spray, the deer can continue to browse. You know, Even though the drill is going to lay it over, it's not going to outright kill it all. And the deer can continue to browse what's there as the new fall blend comes up. The other cool thing that I'm excited about is we have grain sorghum in there. And grain sorghum isn't something that's overly attractive until the seed heads come out and they they fill green it's a it's additional starch it's additional carbohydrates and it's I found it's good early season attraction deer will come out and and hammer those almost like acorns in a sense and that additional food above it's just one more uh, notch in the belt one more tool in your toolbox however you want to look at that but you've got that but When it comes to what I'm planting in the fall, and this is kind of the meat and potatoes of what I want to talk about, keep this in mind. There is not a single plant that can do it all. And what I mean is, no plant can keep attraction all season long and keep your biomass, your food, your tonnage all season long. Plants peak. Their maturities, their palatability—they all have different times and when they peak, and you can manipulate that yourself with the timing of when you plant certain things. But at the end of the day, some species do better than others. Uh, perennial clover does a great job for you know long durations in the season. Cereal grains, you know, straight wheat, straight rye—they do really well throughout a bulk of the season, but their levels of attraction relative to other food sources in the area can be different. Um, Deer always want to pick the best. They'll pick the best and they'll work from the top to the bottom and what's available. And if you assume that you have everything in the surrounding neighborhood, and I'm not talking about food plots right now, I'm talking about your habitat, manipulation, your early succession. If you've got that Taken, taken care of. We've got high quality browse, high quality native plants. That's going to alleviate some stress on your food plots. And that's how I kind of dictate some of the species that I'll plant. <clears throat> um, another thing that I'll keep in mind when I'm picking species is not all soil can hold certain plants. Um, some Certain soils are better than others. And I have an instance that that's going to hold true this year. And I'll talk about that. And I did mention the browse pressure is a big deal. If you have high browse pressure, you know, even if you have uh, a well laid out property, quality habitat, uh, quality food, if you just have a lot of deer and you pick certain species and they're going to wipe it out in the first few weeks of season, that can be a problem. So let's get right to this instance of how I'm interpreting this property that I hunt. With multiple food plots, I I feel like there's, uh, I'm going to say, six or seven different food plots located throughout this property, and there are different instances of browse pressure, and there's also different soil types. Some of these plots have been there longer. They've been in a, a better rotation and better soil management, better fertility, all those things, and they can grow better food plots versus some of the newer food plots that were more recently cleared out. They might have might have had some erosion problems. Topsoil might not be quite as good. Um, and you couple that with certain areas are also corresponding with higher deer pressure on that portion of the property. So I'm going to cater the food plot species a little bit differently. But uh, first and foremost, I'm trying to plant these really, really soon mid august is going to be my sweet spot if it gets into later august because it's too dry that's okay i'm not missing the mark on any anything but let's start in the areas where i've got better soil and moderate deer pressure we're going to put every food plot is going to have the same species just different halves in that and i'll touch back on this at the end the first half is going to have Winter peas, I believe they're Aus- Austrian winter peas, I think is what we got this year, and crimson clover. They're going to get drilled at, at fairly high rates at at one half of the food plot. You know, if it's, if it's a one-acre food plot, <clears throat> a half of an acre is getting that. Peas and clover, and those heavy legumes, especially the peas, they produce a lot of biomass, and they're extremely attractive. They, they'll be the first thing to go when you look at this whole food plot program. It's, it's just got a lot of it. nutrition and it's, it's like s- sweet candy when it comes to the greens. So that establishes deer utilizing that food plot early <clears throat> from the time that it goes into planting. And it'll also be the first thing that goes in the fall. I mean, it'll go up until the frost. If we get a heavy frost, it'll knock back that pea crop significantly or if they just eat it before we even get to a frost, which is possible. Um, The last thing we'll do on this section after we plant this with the drill, a few weeks later we'll come back with cereal rye and we'll top dress that. I usually do around 100 pounds per acre and broadcast it with a hand spreader over top of that existing crop. And as the deer kinda eat down the crimson clover and the peas, The cereal grains are getting light and rain, and they're starting to grow up through that. And the ride does a really, really good job of filling in lateral space, doing a weed suppression, but it's also great attraction mid into late hunting season. Rye grows at cold temperatures. I'm sure a lot of you've heard that. I've heard anywhere as low as 38 degree soil temperature. It's still actively growing. It might not be growing rapidly, but it's still moving uh, moisture and nutrients through the plant, which makes it an attractive food source, especially when nothing else is green in late season. So, from our from my perspective i've got something that's going to help hold me the first half of season <clears throat> and then i've got something that'll hold me the later half of season and the second half of the plot so we talked about that first half acre splitting the other half i'm going to do a straight brassica crop and i say straight brassica it's going to have multiple different types of brassicas in it. It'll have rapes, kales, turnips, radishes, collards, cabbage, you know, you name it. And then I'll also have a little bit of crimson clover mixed in with that. Crimson clover doesn't compete with brassica quite like a, uh, a cereal grain. You have to really manipulate your seeding rates to make that appropriate. If you go too high on crimson clover, it will. It's going to be a reduced rate of crimson clover, but I'll have um, a good establishment with that and the timing of those crops i've seen deer eat <clears throat> brassicas right out of the ground and eat them to the dirt and they and they never make it to any amount of of food throughout the season and i i don't know where the 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 first frost comes they turn sweeter thing came from you know a lot of people have heard that and there's a lot of people that still believe that uh Dr. Craig Harper did a lot of research on this university of tennessee and you know tested the concept is that starch will turn to sugar when it hits a frost and they did a lot of plant sampling and sent it to labs and evaluated that data and in every case that never came back true brassicas are just one of those things that again i said in the beginning of this deer will pick the most attractive food source available to them so from what I've discussed, I've, I've tried to do everything possible on the native habitat to alleviate browse pressure on food plots and have food plots be an attraction and something that makes deer maneuver through the property and make it huntable. Um, I also feel that when we have the pea side in there, that is a little bit more attractive earlier and that will help alleviate the pressure on the brassicas. So with that said, you've got brassicas on one side, peas, crimson clover, and rye on the other side. I have early season on one side, mid-season on another side, and then the rye is going to take care of that later plant, kind of when everything else is gone. Rye is not a glamour crop, but it's it'll It'll shine when nothing else is growing, and that's how I'm trying to get those plants to peak. I'm hoping that the peas, crimson clover is peaking September into early mid October, and then as that starts to diminish, the inc- there's an increase in attraction of those brassicas sometime in October going into November, and then. November into December or or until, you know, we have nothing growing with the rye. The brassicas, I will scout, and I, I recommend everybody do this. Don't plant your food plots and walk away and just go hunt them in a few months. Walk your fields. Week or two afterwards, walk them. Week or two after that, walk them again. Take a look and see what's growing. Is there anything you can do to make it better? And I said about scouting the brassicas especially, if they're hammering your brassicas early, And you're not going to have much brassica left in season. You can add rye over it. That delayed planting of that rye will be fine. It's not going to compete with the brassicas, especially if they're eating them down and the rye fills in lateral space. You know, farmers drill rye and wheat as a cover crop into November. So there's nothing wrong with going in late September, early October, and broadcasting a cereal grain over the top. If it gets rain and sunshine, it will grow. I'm not saying you're going to get the amount of biomass from that time time of planting that you would say the end of August. However, it will still provide you some additional food, additional greens to maximize the second half or any part of your season, really. Now, that was the first half, and hopefully that gives you some highlight to the deer pressure and the better soil and why I'm picking those species. Now, this other section of property in some of these food plots, again, these are food plots that have a little bit, uh, they're not out as long, more recently cleared, and just trying to build the soil up that it's growing better groceries. <clears throat> Plus, some of these areas, as I said, there is a little bit higher browse pressure, I'm going to pull the peas. So we talked about keeping that mixture 50-50 in these plots. I'm pulling the peas out of the equation. I don't think the soil has the capability to keep up with that high demand crop because that, that crop is something that demands, and then you couple it with the browse pressure. There's probably not going to be a whole lot of food available for any duration of the season. I don't think it's going to fit well. So I'm going to delay that section of planting, and I'll I'll get to what's going to go in there. Uh, I will put brassicas in these food plots. I do feel that there's a chance that I won't get quite the amount of tonnage because of all those things. However, I think with what I'll do in the other half, it'll alleviate that. So we'll plant the brassicas the same time as everything else, that mid-August time frame. I'm going to delay the planting of the pea side, again, I pulled the peas. I'm going to delay that section until late August, early September, and it's just going to be rye and crimson clover. I'm hoping that the crimson clover is going to fill that void early, like the peas would, and then the rye, drilling that a little bit later, you're going to get obviously better germination and better establishment with the drill, and a lot of farmers in this part of the state will generally speaking for like a silage crop for dairy cows when they plant rye in the fall. It's usually in the beginning of September and that's going to be maximum for growth. So I don't need to go earlier and plant it at the same time. Hopefully that staggering will will help that, but I think the crimson clover and rye is going to do much better in that soil condition and with it doing better, that's probably going to handle the browse pressure well. You know, I can't change that aspect of it easily, but what I can do is pick plants that will handle it a little bit better and move forward into the season. So you'll notice that in every situation, I basically have the same food plot going in in all the food plot locations. You know, six, seven, however many food plots we're planting They're getting the same species. And what's great about that is I found that seems to really work. It really does that goal of keeping season-long food. And then I can rotate the half of the plot that each goes in. You know, one half is going to be peas, rye, and crimson clover. I can flop that next year and rotate that section into brassicas and keep going back and forth. So it's almost like you're getting a slight crop rotation when you plant, but I'm keeping that Food in the same location year in and year out. And the reason I do that, <clears throat> property type, I think, can dictate what species you can plant. This property I'm describing is solid hardwoods and there's ag that relates to it. So they're moving towards ag as the day goes. But <clears throat> with this large monoculture of hardwoods, deer. I want to keep deer moving consistently throughout the property. I want to keep them on the same pattern or try to keep them on the same pattern day after day after day because it makes more predictable hunting opportunity. If you divide a property up and you put brassicas in one section and then the north section has clover and the east section has cereal grains and then the south section has corn beans whatever all those plants as I have just established in my first little tidbit here they all peak at different times when they're most attractive and you can find yourself that deer hitting this plot harder and by the time you figure that out they might have already moved on to another plot that predictability in the hunting is really really important The other reason I want to do that and keep that consistent is I think it reduces the stress level on the deer. If you can have the maximum amount of food in the same location, I think you have the ability to hold deer on your property longer. My goal is hopefully to have the pick of the litter, have the best thing in the neighborhood. The deer want to spend their time on that property in daylight. And if you're really interested in trying to get deer to the next age class, then you can do that because they're staying safe on your property, and you can choose which ones you want to hunt. Now, that's going to lead well into this next section, and that's hunting strategy and how it relates to food plot programs. Big question, should you hunt your, on your food plots? I think the obvious answer is yes, but you got to be really, really careful with this. We hunt on box blinds a lot of them, or actually all of them, are homemade box blinds. And they actually have plastic lining in the inside of them and windows with good gaskets. They were built with uh, milled boards, so we, we did everything we could to seal those blinds off, just the same as you would have any commercial blind that has a good gasket and it's it's containing your scent. And not to say that I'm going to hunt my food plot locations on the wrong winds, but in the type of ground that I'm hunting, and I think is relatable to a lot of people in this part of the country with topography and woods and stuff like that. When you get into a food plot, it's an opening in the woods surrounded by trees, it just creates a wind tunnel, a channel where the wind can swirl. Even if the dominant wind is out of the west, it kind of comes over the tops of the trees and then it drops down into that food plot, and it might have a hard time getting through the trees on the other side, so it kind of bounces back and swirls in that food plot. And that's a big problem. I've experienced that time and time again. We used to look at cameras and see mature buck coming into food plots all the time, and we'd go climb in that stand with the right wind direction, and... As consistently as the deer were coming out in those food plots, there were nights that we didn't see much of anything. And we used to just attribute it to say, ah, just what happened to be the night they didn't come out. But really what it was is deer were back in the timber, probably not that far off with a swirling wind, and were able to, to, to know that there was pressure there. And it actually ruined the property. The longer that went on, the worse it got because we were alerting deer for that very reason. At first, we didn't even know why. Now, if you don't have the luxury to hunt in box blinds, because not everybody does, I suggest getting in a location that relates to your food plot. Something that the deer aren't going to stay there for a long duration of time. They're going to pass through, and hopefully it's a location in the timber that the topography allows a more consistent wind direction and even if you do have to deal with swirling winds it's not gonna be at the location where deer are gonna congregate for any length of time so your amount of chance of busting deer is reduced you need to get in and out of a food plot location without being detected it is the most important thing if you are gonna hunt on your food plot you need to have quality screen, barricade, and clean paths that can get you to your stand, into your stand, without deer knowing it. They cannot see you, hear you, or smell you. And that goes for leaving at the end of the night. If you're sitting on a food plot and deer are in the food plot and you need to get out, obviously you can stay and wait until they vacate that plot but sometimes that that can be a while i want it designed that at the end of the night if there's deer 40 yards at the top of the field i can slip out of my stand behind screens and onto a clean path free of leaves and sticks and stuff like that and i can sneak out the back and they never know that i'm there that is crucial because the minute that you bump those deer off those food plots that is how you see properties turn nocturnal. I don't believe that bucks are automatically nocturnal, and there's, there's a lot of people that are highlighting this and, and, and sharing this, and it makes so much sense if, uh, if you think about it. Deer naturally are crepuscular. There's been so much research that shows they want to move morning and they want to move evening, and that's because that's their biggest advantage for wind. That's when the thermals are changing. That's when they're the safest to maneuver with that swirling wind that changing wind they can sense predation a whole lot better and the minute that you bump that daylight food pattern that's when they're going to know they're the gig is up the hunting pressure's on and they're not going to want to spend as much time in daylight there it's it's just that simple I'm sure you've heard somebody, or maybe you you even fall into this category, where you had a property and you thought, man, I can make this better. I'm going to plant food plots. And I've, I've heard of people making food plots, doing habitat improvement, and the more they did, the worse their hunting got. And it makes no sense. And I've experienced this to some degree as well. And the reason for that is if you're not coupling the hunting strategy to make it that deer have no idea they're being hunted, you're creating an attraction just to chase them away. So ultimately, yeah, you've got this high attraction and deer want to relate because there's good quality food, but if they can smell you, see you, or hear you at some point in your hunting process, they will just avoid that until nighttime. And it's easy to get sucked in that makes you think you're doing things right if you're observing doe, young bucks, fawns, you know tolerating this certain level of pressure but when you start to hunt mature deer and you're not seeing them on a consistent basis you're not seeing them in daylight whether on stand or on camera of any consistency that's a great indicator that you need to change something and that was a big thing for us and there was a lot of people along the way that helped me realize that and change some things in how that laid out so that's kind of my spiel on the hunting strategy, the food plots I'm doing for this fall. I truly believe that is a game changer when you can do all those things. I, there's no doubt in my mind, we've seen it consistently the past few years, mature deer will be on our food plots opening week. It is just a matter of will we get the correct wind direction and will we be, will we be smart enough to pick the right locations in which they are and I I think we have that down it's just a matter of do we get the wind directions to get into those stand locations and I I hope we will usually sometime at least once throughout opening week it'll happen we've connected on a lot of mature deer in that way so you heard me talking about expensive equipment and drills and no-till and I wouldn't be doing anybody you know any of our listeners justice if I didn't talk about kind of poor man style. And I am going to be doing a small food plot this year. Uh, One behind my house, I should say two, uh, the one behind my house I do this way. And then another property that I just gained access has about a quarter to three eighth of an acre opening on it that I think is going to fit well for a food plot. And I'm going to be doing it quote unquote poor man style. And what I'm going to be doing is there's forbs and some grasses and you know different weeds of of that degree i'm going to be going through with my hand seeder and broadcasting small seeded plants and what those small seeds being brassicas cereal grains or clovers you know i'm using annual clover crimson in this case those small seeds can get to the soil surface a lot easier through that thatch but what i'm going to do is broadcast it and i'm going to broadcast all of that at one and a half times the normal seeding rate i always bump my seeding rates up in that case just because i think you're going to lose some of that potential with the matter with that matter and you're going to get some that gets onto bare dirt and gets exposed to soil and baked versus covered by that material it's just a better situation when you do that but those small seeds i'm going to do that then afterwards i'm going to spray it dead i'm going to use generic roundup Spray all the material on top. Know that will not hurt your seeds. You can broadcast and then immediately when you're done, spray Roundup, kill the vegetation on top. If you wait a minimum of two hours, that Roundup has ingested into the plant. It's a systemic herbicide. It's moving through the plant. You are safe to go do this next step, and that is to mow. When you take a mower... I'm just going to use a lawnmower, mow all that dead material over top. It's going to kind of spread like straw over top of seed, like when you plant grass seed in your yard, kind of cover that seed up. And if you have something to pack, like a Colta packer or a roller or something like that, by all means do that press those seeds into the soil. Ensure good seed to soil contact. Cultipacking is ultimately one of the best seed to soil contact methods there is. And then the last thing you need is rain. And I didn't talk about fertilizing at all. I fertilized to a soil test. I might do a little bit of nitrogen here and there. Uh, I'm trying to do as much, you know, nutrient cycling with plants that I can reduce the amount of fertilizer. And that really wasn't the point. But fertilize at some point, if you need to, based on what your soil tests and what your plants are calling for. Now, this poor man plot that I just laid out that I'm going to be doing, it's not a foolproof, this is just how you do it, and it's just that easy. The biggest thing with no-till, I've said before and I'll say again, residue management is huge. And that's not something that you just read in a book and you know, you've got to experience what is too much residue. Generally, if it's really, really tall, thick grass, that is too thick. But if you've got something that, basically what I do is I walk out into the field, and if I can look down through the plant matter and I can see the soil surface, you're probably going to be okay. But if there's just a carpet of plants and grasses and stuff like that, Covering the soil surface, and it's going to be really hard for those seeds to maneuver down through. That might be too thick, and this method might not work for you. You might be better off spraying it earlier, spraying it dead with Roundup, and allowing that stuff to desiccate so it exposes the soil surface. It's really something you need to experiment with and tinker to learn what works best for your soil type and the equipment that you have. You know, maybe you don't have some of the equipment I'm using. And that's fine. You just have to adjust accordingly. But the biggest thing is walk your food fields, walk your food plots, plant, experiment. Look what worked, look what didn't. If it didn't work, figure out how you can adjust it so it will work. It's, it's a constant experimenting process. And I believe that when you can do no-till food plots, number one, it's a whole lot less time and fuel expense than tilling. I know everybody loves to till the ground but it's not necessary and it's time consuming and did I mention it's not necessary. You can do it, you just have to cater to what your soil uh, moisture holding capacity, what your residue is and figure out the timing and maturation of certain plants and those things are all just little tools in the toolbox to allow this to work. Uh, i've been doing it for a while now i've had really good luck i've had some failures and I talk about I talked about failures earlier let's say you've got a crop failure for some reason. you can still broadcast radishes into September. You can still broadcast cereal rye and wheat and any of those cereal grains into September, even into October. Two years ago, we had a crop failure from drought. And the week before the season, the last week of September, we were broadcasting cereal rye. That was the second round of cereal rye we broadcasted. But after the failure happened, I believe it would have been somewhere around the second week of September, we seeded radishes in all the food plots and then followed that up with, with uh, I think it was two layers of rye just trying to fill in lateral space. And believe it or not, in October, was it the, the the best food plot we ever had? No, but we still had green and it still lasted a good duration of the season. So you can do those things, but you won't know that if you don't walk your plots and you don't learn what worked and what didn't and how to fill that space. So kind of rambling. I feel like I'm saying the same things over and over again when it comes to that, but it's just stuff that's important, guys. And food plots are so important on private land. And I know a lot of the the public land guys, you know, they kind of just roll their eyes and talk about this being a rich man's game. The species I picked and the location I picked to buy my seed, I'm trying to be as cost effective as possible because I sure ain't made of money. But uh, you can pick good food plot blends from any food plot seed company, or you can do what I do and you can go to a seed dealer that deals in cover crops or agricultural seeds mix your own blends you can do that at a feed mill and it's your decision it's your uh, it's un- it's your decision of if that's the best fit for you and if that's the best food plot that you can plant but for us it fits well and it's really working and if it's uh if it's not broke don't fix it kind of deal so hey i hope this finds you well i hope you take something away from this food plot conversation I know I get really excited talking about food plots and I just, my mind races constantly thinking about what to do, how to do it better, how to, uh, how to utilize this strategy to wrap my tag around a deer. And I'm starting to see some dandies, some buck that I would love to wrap my tag around. We're seeing on camera and I can't wait for this next phase of just trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together to make it happen and reach my goal. My goal is to shoot one of those big mature deer and i'm going to do that with all the stuff that we just talked about hopefully lord willing so hey with that guys i appreciate you tuning into this episode and uh, we'll catch you here again next week and god bless have a have a good one we'll we'll see you